Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. This is the Intelligence Matters Podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. I'm Michael Morell, and this is a special edition of Intelligence Matters. In this bonus episode, we bring you a panel conversation on congressional oversight of intelligence that I led in partnership with the Michael V. Hayden Center for Intelligence at George Mason University's Schar School, where I am a senior fellow. The panelists were all former members of the Senate and House Intelligence Committees, former Senators Saxby Chambliss and Bill Nelson, and former Representatives Jane Harmon and Mike Rogers. I hope you'll enjoy the discussion. I know I did. If you read your program, um, you know that we've got some very special people up here, Um, some great expertise, incredible experience. I will tell you that I I worked with each one of these folks, and I will tell you that each one of them is deeply passionate about the national security of the United States. So we are very, very lucky to have them. We have 80 years of congressional experience right here. Um, which is really impressive. So um, great panel. And the last thing I want to say before I ask them a question is we are going to take as a given that intelligence oversight is important. There's not going to be a discussion about that. Oversight in general of the executive branch is important. Oversight of intelligence, I think, is particularly important because the community is made up of a group of organizations that are secret organizations operating in a democracy, and there has to be a process to assure the American people that they are operating the way they should. So that is going to be a given. So where I want to start is I want to ask each of you, and we're going to go down the row here, we'll start with Jane, is how you saw your responsibilities when you were on the committee. And in answering that question, I'd love to know whether you saw it any differently for the oversight of collection and analysis on the one hand, and the oversight of covert action on the other. Because covert action, at the end of the day, is both an intelligence activity and a policy activity. So I just wonder if you made a difference with regard to both of those. All right. Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome to the building where the Wilson Center lives and thrives, uh, the Reagan Center. 
And uh, let me first express my undying affection and admiration for the Haydens, both of them. And I have to tell one Hayden story which relates to all this, and that is that when I was ranking member on the committee and Pete Huckstra was chairman on the House side, he's now our uh, vaunted ambassador, um, we were invited to dinner at the Haydens. And I think Mike was then director of NSA, if if I understand this correctly. And... Pete and I had just had a fight. Uh, I used to call us uh, an old married couple because we would be fine for three weeks, then we'd have a huge fight, not speak to each other for one week, and then we would make up and get back together, and hopefully the committee would uh, be benefited by the fact that we were working together. At any rate, we went to the Haydens, having had a fight, and poor Mike and Janine had to preside over this dinner party where we were sitting like this, glaring at each other. (coughs) And they did it, they, not just Mike, did it masterfully. And we made up and went along. And it is to illustrate the point that these committees work much better when there is bipartisan cooperation. And back in the day when Mike was on the House committee and Saxby before him was on the House committee, it worked. And I was very proud of my service, and you bet. Uh, I think that... uh, it is a, hugely important uh, not only to have oversight, uh, but to do it well. And to distinguish between the t- types of collection, I've been thinking about that for two seconds, Mike. Um, I was, because I was ranking member, I was a member of the Gang of Eight. And I was briefed on the Gang of Eight as the uh, chairman and ranking member of each intelligence committee and the majority and minority leaders of each house. So it's eight people. And Mike Hayden was a briefer, uh, certainly on my watch, uh, for a long time, of the most uh, uh, classified programs in the uh, first term of of George W. Bush, right after 9-11. And uh, things like the telephone metadata program, which all of you know because you're all smart, the Section 215 program, which is soon not going to be uh, in effect. But at any rate, uh, I had access to to information that others didn't. So I don't know how to distinguish uh, to answer you, but I would say that I I took all of it very seriously. And I thought that certainly the Gang of Eight briefings were at an enormously sophisticated level, and I understood that. Some of our other briefings were less sophisticated, and I think it was Pete Hoekstra who said, "You you have to play 20 questions. You have to ask precisely the right question of the intelligence briefer to get an answer that's useful. And I thought that was a problem. But, but my answer is that oversight matters and bipartisanship matters just as much as oversight. And back in the day, uh, the committees in both houses, I think, played an absolutely crucial role. And I'm hoping that the House committee will be back uh, uh, in this term of Congress and will function on a bipartisan basis. Mike? Yeah, again, I think it was absolutely critically important to the safety and security and the national security of the country to get this piece right. So I looked at it as a review of the policies, and not just covert action gets political. Some of the other collection platforms also ended up becoming very polarized uh, politically when they entered the public debate. So I I looked at all of those policy reviews. Uh, On covert action, we did monthly reviews with our uh, the folks who were cleared to get into those month, uh, monthly reviews on every covert action program. And the reason that uh, we did that 
uh, was because it's the most sensitive thing the U.S. government does and the thing that could go the most wrong if it were uh, not to go correctly and became uh, known to the public. So we were very aggressive about all of that. And then the budget review was very, very important. It was the way that we provided oversight to the 17 intelligence agencies, the 70-plus uh, is the unclassified number billion dollars of the way we spent money. So the review of that policy, the review of how we were using those resources, and and then we had that element where if there were disagreements or we thought that they were getting outside of the lines, then we had other means of, of bringing those folks in to try to, to make sure that they weren't going outside the lines in, in, a, in a polite way or a diplomatic way. Uh, and the last part of this that often gets missed uh, I think on these committees, is that we were also there to support the community. We asked them to do really hard, difficult things. Uh, and what frustrated me sometimes along the way on the committee is the only time that they got to come up is when we were slapping them about the head and shoulders for something A or B that went wrong. And some of it was serious. Some of it, I would argue, probably not so serious. But that last piece <clears throat> was very, very important. If we're going to ask you to do this, we need to give you the resources, give you the legal authority, uh, and then make sure you're staying within the lines. If we do that part, it saves on the trouble at the end. But that's the way I looked at congressional oversight when I was chairman. Bill? May I tell a story on General Hayden? You sure may. (laughs) Uh, First of all, it is so great to see him looking so good. And uh, thank you for everything that you taught me. Uh, There was one time that I asked him to do something, and he didn't want to do it. Uh, We were in the middle of the rhubarb on waterboarding. And I'm accustomed, if I'm going to fly something, I want to go out and kick the tires. Uh, So I asked General Hayden if he would waterboard me. (laughs) He said, I can't do that. But there were a lot of Republican volunteers at that (laughs) time. Yes, there were. There were plenty. Uh, And and he said, oh, no, I, I couldn't do that. I said, well, I can hold my breath for uh, a while. And uh, he said, no. Uh, and I kept after him. And, and finally, uh, he, he decided he couldn't do that, but he at least could send the people down that could go through point by point uh, what exactly they did. And uh, hopefully I was a little better informed than going into that political discussion. Uh, I found that dealing with people like General Hayden and you, Mike, the higher-ups, it was the questions were answered crisply. Mm -hmm. But I found as you get down into the pecking order that there was always an attempt to evade. And thus, uh, a lot of my discussion on the committee was more interrogation uh, of trying to get the answer out of somebody. Uh, I think uh, that needs to uh, improve because there's got to be that communication between the overseer and the executive agency. Um, I was such a big fan of what the intelligence community was doing 
uh, I would go uh, to some far-off country and go out and ride with the agents to try to learn what it was all about so that I would have a better perspective in order to make decisions. And uh, I think that uh, this is a part of government that does not get the accolades that it justly deserves. Jackson? Bill, we can still make that waterboard. Okay. <laughs> uh, General, it's great to see you, man. It's, uh, uh, we know it's been tough on you. For you to be here tonight means an awful lot to all of us personally. So uh, thanks for your commitment to our country. Um, you know, the, um, the, the best way to, to pers- uh, prepare yourself for any kind of hearing that the Intelligence Committee had, uh, irrespective of the level of leadership or under-leadership you had there, was to be out in the field and um, sit around at night in Kabul or Baghdad or wherever it may be, or some godforsaken place uh, that Burr and I went one night in um, uh, Asadabad. Um, and you talk to these folks who have been out putting their life in harm's way all day long. Uh, They were there that night just because we were there. And you have a drink with them, that's when you really find out what's going on out there. And that kind of background gives you the preparation for being able to ask uh, those questions, Mike, um, as you well know, about what is really happening. If, you're, if we're going to do oversight, and you're right, Mike, there's no question but what that needs to be done. Uh, the way you prepare for that is to really get a feel for what's happening out among the people who are actually doing it. Um, from, a, um, uh, from a covert action standpoint, Covert actions were always fascinating, but they were always complicated. Uh, obviously, that's why they call them covert actions. There's nothing mm-hmm. simple and um, um, non-dangerous about it. They're, they're all actions that put individuals' life in harm's way on a regular basis for some extended period of time. What always bothered me about covert actions was not the one the CIA did in and of itself, but it was the mixture of the military and the CIA um, that used to be so complex that uh, trying to analyze whether it was the right thing to do or not and whether money was being spent in the right way, the fact that you had two entities like that working together made it extremely difficult. And at the end of the day, whether it's in the first analysis on what's happening or whether it deals with covert action programs, if you don't trust the leadership of the CIA, and I don't know anybody that didn't, then, um, you know, you're, you're never going to be convinced. And, and Bill's exactly right. The leadership never did anything but shoot straight with us, in my opinion. And um, the, the covert actions and the, the non-covert actions, whether it was analytics or whatever, uh, we always got the right answers from you guys, Mike. And we knew whether or not what you would be telling us was right. And there was never any variance from that. 
You know, it's interesting um, the points that you make about the more junior officers because I saw the dynamic. You know, I saw junior officers who were more careful about what they said to you than what they said to foreign intelligence services. And I think they were careful because they were worried about the, the getting stuck in a political sandwich, right? Getting stuck in politics um, in some way. Um, and I think it, it came across to you, it came across to you as evasion. But that, that is a long-term problem. It's always been there. Um, and I think it takes both the leadership of the committee and the leadership of the agency to break that down. But also, they had a narrower mission. And so often, when I would ask a junior person, well, what about this? He or she would say, well, I'm only focused on that. And it took a more senior person to have a broader view. Okay, so let's broaden this out a little bit. Um, This time we're going to start with you, Mike. Um, So what's the difference between good and bad oversight, and what what does it take to get really good oversight? What are the key ingredients? Uh, Well, I think members have to make a special commitment, candidly, to be on the Intelligence Committee. Uh, You can't get everything through osmosis of somebody else reading it and digesting something on a page review. You have to read the raw material. And there's a lot of members, unfortunately, who just don't make that commitment. So I argued if we were going to have somebody before the committee, we were going to make all those materials available uh, prior to their showing up, even in a a classified setting. And I expected members uh, to read the material, and that just sometimes just didn't happen. So if you're going to ask those folks to come up, you need to understand the material, including, by the way, the broader context. You can't just say Operation A to... Uh, to find that glass of water and then really understand what's going on. You need to understand the room and the water, the glasses, and all of those things. And so what happens sometimes is the oversight gets too myopic. They focus on that one thing that may have gone wrong or that one briefing that didn't go exactly right versus the whole picture of everything that's going on. And so uh, to me, the, be- the best oversight is, is that downrange oversight where members go downrange and spend some time with people doing the work on the front end, the pointy end of the spear, uh, understanding the geopolitics of the region, which means lots of reading, uh, lots of analytical materials you need to pour through, uh, and then understanding the program and what, what, pro- what particular event it was trying to solve or what collection you were aimed at. And so if you get those layers of depth, then I think oversight becomes a lot easier. And it doesn't, again, that doesn't mean we always agreed. It doesn't mean that the intelligence community always agreed with the oversight activities. That's going to happen, and that's okay. As I used to say when I would ask for something, no is just a long way to yes, um, and, as you know. <laughs> and and that's, it's good. It's healthy it's, uh, at the end of the day. But, again, to me, if you're going to do proper oversight – And the other piece is leave the politics out of the room. There are plenty of things to fight about outside the door of those committee hearings, plenty to fight about. And I just think we we didn't do a great job, and I don't think they're still doing a great job, of leaving the politics out of the room. If you're in that committee to find the one thing and run outside and say, I caught them doing X, you are doing a disservice to your country. And so that's the part that I think gets us gummed up on the bad side, on the other side, being informed, and being very aggressive about your duties. It is a major consumption of time on that committee because you have to do the reading. 
you have to do the traveling downrange and talk to people. Uh, but I think that makes better oversight of something that's really an important uh, piece of our national security apparatus. Bill? Well, I would uh, certainly identify with everything that you said. Let me amplify on the politics. Uh, the politics gets in the way of good intelligence and certainly good oversight. I never did like to go to the public hearings with intelligent officials because I was afraid I was going to say something that I shouldn't have said because I wanted to be free to explore whatever the issue was. And I think as... uh, the chairman says that rush to the microphone after the hearings is one of the worst things that can happen. And yet we're living in that kind of uh, milieu where there is almost a demand. You're an elected official. You need to address this. And uh, if you say, uh, I can't talk about that, uh, somebody's going to try to get you to talk about it. Uh, and I think that's going to be a continuing problem. Is, and, is, the, and then just add the insult to injury, the leaks. That has complicated everybody's lives. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, Raytheon. I'm Michael Morrell, and you're listening to a bonus episode of Intelligence Matters. Do you hear that? That's the sound of the world changing, of networks connecting, enemies evolving. You can't slow it down. You can't avoid it. You can't stop it. But you can stay a step ahead. Every day, Raytheon engineers are innovating, modernizing, delivering trusted, innovative solutions that protect people, information, and infrastructure. So as our world changes, we can make it a safer place. The difference between the way the SSCI has approached the Russia investigation and the way HIPSI has approached it is it personality-based? Is it, is, is it that simple, or is it deeper than that? Well, looking at it from afar, it certainly seems that it's been personality-based, and it's been much too partisan in the House. To the contrary, you see uh, the great degree of cooperation between Richard and Mark in the Senate committee, and I commend them for that. And that carries over, uh, by the way, into the discussions on the floor when often senators are talking to each other where you can find another senator. It's when you're voting on the floor. You'll, you'll often see the little clumps on the floor of the Senate of Republicans and Democratic senators that are on the Intelligence Committee conferring, talking. Mike, Jane, do you, do you agree that it's just personalities, or is there something, something special about the House here? Well, the House... <laughs> oh, look the at house the time. Is, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. The House is a perpetual election machine. Understand, two-year terms mean you're out there all the time running for re-election, and if you're a member of the Intelligence Committee and you uh, handle yourself correctly, you can't talk about being on the committee. So it's not helpful in an election to just sit and do everything Mike said, which is right, uh, which is do a lot of reading, do a lot of work, and disappear. So a lot of members recently on the House Intelligence Committee, I'd say much more than the Senate Committee, on both sides, 
uh, want to hit the microphones and be visible. And there's pressure to do that. And when some of them do it, then there's pressure on others. And I, it's, it's a pernicious thing. I, I just make a, a, a couple of, of other comments about that. I mean, at least from, from my perspective. Uh, the committees always had, back in the day, uh, uh, people chosen who were uh, suited for the work and really wanted to work hard. And I think the appointments to the committee, uh, especially on the House side, changed in the last decade or so. And people are put on that committee more for political reasons than in the past. And they are, uh, some of them, more political on, on both sides. And I think the, 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 the lack of, partisan, of bipartisanship has, or, let me start again, Bi- bipartisanship has been hurt by that. And, and the other comment is, at least on the House side, there are term limits. And most people rotate off. They don't seem to apply to everybody. And I never thought they applied to the chairman and the ranking member. Uh, long story if you want to ask me about that. But people rotate off when they become expert. As, as Mike said, it's a foreign language. You have to learn the acronyms. And you have to learn what the answers by the briefers or even the comments by the briefers mean. And if you don't put in the work you will never get it. And so, again, it's, it's kind of uh, unfortunate that the expertise of members and the respect for members has declined. Uh, and I think we all suffer from that. You, know, uh, you can get through this. It's very difficult, but you have to. I'd like to think I was the greatest chairman of all time. Would have never, ever happened that we had any success at all if we hadn't gotten together with Dutch Ruppersberger and we both decided together to do this. It wouldn't have worked. And we would have had the same problems. And this is a true story as I am sitting here. We had finally agreed we hadn't been able to get an authorization budget in five years on the committee. And it was all for political amendments that really were designed to score points outside of the doors. Nothing that had to do with proper oversight of a $70 billion budget. We couldn't get it done. So we agreed. We sat down when he became ranking member and I was chairman. We said, listen, we're going we're gonna, to, I will stop every Republican poison pill amendment if you stop every Democrat poison pill amendment. And we shook hands on it. And we both stuck to that. And, it, you know, that un- can be uncomfortable, as you all can know that, right? And when we finally got the first agreement on that first budget, we, reached, we were down in the basement of the Capitol, and we reached over and we shook hands and the building shook. <laughs> I wish I were kidding. Do you remember the earthquake? Yeah. We've decided we caused that on that day. We've, oh, my God, what have we done? I mean, literally, we had to get up and leave the, uh, leave the uh, you know, get out of the building. And, it, and two things happened with that. This is the other piece of that. We also did something pretty unique at the time. We said our staffs are going to brief budget matters together at the table in front of all of us. No more, you get your budget staff brief, and we get our budget staff brief, and then we fight about it. That's done. And what that did is it set a signal to the staff that we're serious about this. Not, it can't be just us. It's got to be you, too. And, you know, there was some, some triumphs through that process, and there were some low points during that process. Uh, you know, not that we agreed on everything. Uh, but over the course of time, I think the team started gelling, understanding that our goal and purpose here was to get this right. 
doesn't mean that the Intelligence Committee does everything right. It didn't mean that we didn't have, you know, we, as we used to call it the wire brush treatment when we have to bring I remember. <laughs> and, you know, we took that pretty serious. We took that as a big part of our responsibility. If we were going to do things behind closed doors and not be able to engage the public, then we better take it seriously. And so I do think you can do it, but you have to have both parties willing to do this. And, and it is personality-based in that regard, I guess. I think it's unfortunate that it's personality-based because I think you can, you know, uh, candidly, you can talk to people in the, in the intelligence community today who, who say they would rather, you know, go to Butte, Montana in an assignment uh, than go down to the intelligence committee for a briefing. And, you know, this is dangerous. I, I, don't, you know, I don't think people understand. This, this is dangerous. That means it won't be 20 questions. It'll be 100 questions. It won't be, you know, your top briefers and your best analysts unless, you know, people are forced to go in the room. It, that creates a level of tension that's not healthy to getting the right information. So I hope they get back to this. I hope they start leaving candidly what, you know, a Russian investigation on the Intelligence Committee about, the finances is no place for that investigation. It's a great example. It shouldn't happen there. A, they don't have the resources to do it. Uh, and B, they're going to have to hire uh, folks to come in to do it who aren't related to the proper oversight of the 17 agencies. And what that tension will do, I mean, there's other places you can do that in Congress. You can do it all day long. That's the kind of thing I'm talking about. You have to take that stuff out of the committee uh, and let the committee do what it's supposed to do. And it's hard. And if you do it right, it's time-consuming and difficult and not always pleasant. Uh, and so I, I, I do think, unfortunately, they've got themselves in this Gordian knot uh, where they can't, can't quite get themselves out of it. And it's really unfortunate. And I argue not healthy for the intelligence community. They'll pay a price for this over time because something may or may not get caught that need not caught, bad word, discovered, addressed, addressed, thank you, better word. That's why he was an analyst for the CIA. (laughs) That's why he was so good in front of the committee. We could never get him to get, you know, go the wrong direction. To be fully accurate. There's one other um, aspect of this that we need to make sure we state, though, and that is that none of us would have ever been able to be prepared or be able to do our job without good staff. And Jane and I were on the um, HIPSI together uh, when 9-11 happened. We we were on the um, subcommittee on terrorism and homeland security. I was chair. She was my ranking member. We did some really good stuff in the aftermath of 9-11, but we had great staff working hard for us. Two of them happened to be former CIA guys that you remember, Mike. And... The same thing is true over on um, on the Senate side without great staff on both sides of the aisle. Uh, Senate's a little bit different in that all staff works for the chairman and the vice chairman. Even though you may have designees, staff designees, everybody works for the chairman and the vice chairman. Diane couldn't hire anybody that I didn't agree to. She could, I couldn't hire anybody she didn't agree to. And that was a great way for it to work. And uh, I got two former staffers here tonight, um, Hayden Milberg and and Tyler Stevens. Tyler and I spent a week in the jungles of Columbia chasing drug folks around. And it's that kind of dedicated, committed staff that gets you prepared for, number one, who the witnesses ought to be and what the questions are you ought to ask them. And we, um, we, we were all blessed with good staff during our years. So the, um, the president's rebukes of the intelligence <clears throat> community, public rebukes, um, what advice 
would you have for the current leadership of the two committees about how they should think about that and how they might want to work with the leadership of the community to ensure that there isn't any damage or there's you minimize the damage from that kind of thing. How would you think about that if you were still there? Jane. Well, I, uh, carefully would be one answer. <laughs> but um, just thinking about several of these comments, and we're all good friends up here, and we've all worked closely together, so you have to start with that. And you also have to start with the proposition that the terrorists aren't checking our party registration before they blow us up. So it is really important to have accurate and timely intelligence assessments. I, I, I think this. Um, the president is the president. He is the uh, duly elected leader of our country. But he represents the Article II branch of government, and Congress is the Article I branch of government. And Congress authorizes and appropriates funds for all of our government business, including the business of our intelligence agencies. And I think it is enormously important for Congress, on a bipartisan basis, to send a message to the intelligence community, and all of us did it when we were on the committee, all of us did it, uh, that we stand with them and that we understand that uh, the stars on the wall in the main hall of the CIA are about people whose names are declared or not declared who died in the line of duty as the tip of the spear protecting our country. And I never, I tear up every time I walk into that building. It's a hallowed space. And we have to protect them. And we have to depend on their making objective assessments of what, you know, intelligence is a set of predictions. It's not a science. On what they reasonably expect will happen based on all the information available. And that is the only way we can hopefully prevent or at least disrupt plots against us. And otherwise, we can't. So last comment on this. And I, it is, it is, it's a, that's the right question, and it's a tough, it's, it's a tough point. Congress, has, it, Congress is not supposed to uh, second-guess, in my view, uh, intelligence assessments. We are supposed to help set things up and fund them so that the best assessments are made. That is why when we did intelligence reform in 2004, Saxby was part of it. I don't know, Bill, if you were. And Mike, were you on the committee? Just, just barely. Mike was a baby. Um, <laughs> we passed it on a bipartisan basis uh, in, both, in both the House and the Senate. And what it set up was a joint command across the agency so we would not <clears throat> again... Uh, not be able to to uh, uh, coordinate, but it also set up a process for a new process for pre- uh, preparing national intelligence estimates. We, we'd had a colossal failure on the WMD in Iraq intelligence assessment, and this process includes things like featuring dissents by uh, government agencies, having what I always called an outside book review by a panel of experts. Uh, and vetting sources. I mean, this seems pretty obvious, but that wasn't done effectively before. And now it is. And guess what? NIEs are so much better. And that's the role of Congress, is setting the process so that the people who know their jobs and put the country first get it as right as possible. Thanks, me, let me ask you the same question about the president. Well, I'm not sure what the president expected 
to hear from his intelligence community when um, he was inaugurated. Um, but clearly, the, the right kind of intelligence message was not getting through to him. It's okay to disagree with the intelligence community if you're the commander-in-chief. I wish he would do it more in private. And I, I remember, Mike, you were directly involved in this, the, the 2007 NIE on the Iran nuclear program. Um, when they came back and said that they had discontinued operation in 2003, we all thought that was crazy, and I remember the leadership questioned that. Uh, but you did it the right way. There was never a front-page story on the New York Times about it. Um, so there's a way to uh, be critical of, of uh, the intel community and, and a way not to. I do think um, that there was a lot of redemption on the part of the intelligence community that just happened recently, and that's a meeting with Kim Jong-un. Mm-hmm. Clearly, um, the DNI-led intelligence community uh, found these instances of violation of what Kim said he was going to do uh, within North Korea. And the president walked in there with, with um, all the allegations that he needed uh, substantiated by the intelligence community. And, you know, thank goodness the president has recognized that. So, you know, it's, um, uh, it's evolving, and I hope that positive step uh, leads to more positive comments coming out of the White House. I hope there's an – I believe that there is an extra obligation on the part of the leadership of the intelligence committees – to rise above the partisanship in working with the intelligence community when there is a disconnect with the White House. And I think you see character when that happens. Mike? I just don't think it's helpful to any degree. I mean, I, I think it's healthy for the, the intelligence oversight committees even uh, the National Security Council, even the president to challenge NIEs, that's great. They're not 100% right every time, and we should challenge the underpinnings of these often. And we often did that. And I think it's a better product, better informed members, better informed decisions when that's over. Uh, Again, doesn't mean the intelligence committee was wrong, but all those challenges should happen. Publicly doing this is not helpful for the work of the men and women who are overseas trying to get other folks to work on behalf of the United States as well. And as as somebody who still does a lot of international travel, I can tell you it has an impact. And people are thinking, gosh, why would I work for you guys? You don't even believe in yourselves, right? right? Why should I take a risk? Uh, If you don't believe in it, why should I believe in it? And so they don't make this different parsing that we might hear domestically in politics that it's a this president or that president, they just see the United States doing X, and it doesn't sell well overseas. And I think that's where I think the administration needs to take particular care and caution to say, you want to have a disagreement with the intel community? Have at it. You should absolutely do that. But there are channels, there are processes to have that happen. Uh, And that's where I would keep it, because it is, I do think it has an impact uh, on operations overseas, and I, I hate to see it, and I hate to see the morale. Where you know they're tough. You know, candidly, one president is not, uh, or one administration, uh, or one even leader is not going to get them off of their mission, and they're not pouting in the corner and hiding under their desk and sucking their thumb. 
Um, that was me on most of my hearing days. But, no, it but, wasn't. <laughs> but I will say, I mean, they're going to get out, and they're going to do their work, and they're going to get up the next day. It's just not helpful. And I argue we don't, we don't want to make their job any harder than it is uh, right now. And I would hope that the president would start to acknowledge that these are his people trying to get it right so that he can make a good decision when he travels overseas or makes a foreign policy decision. It also has an impact on recruiting, and that's another part of this. If the best people don't join our intelligence community, what are we going to have in five or ten years? Um, before we go to questions, is, is there anybody on the panel who thinks that there should be major changes to the way oversight is done? Or is it tinkering at the margins at this point? Well, I made the point a little earlier about covert action programs where you've got some sort of combination of Title 10 and Title 50. There needs to be a better way for that to be seamless, and the way you do that is through, I think, coordinating that oversight, number one, between the HIPC and the CISA, in which there's apparently not a lot of coordination right now. Um, but that has to happen. And also, you have to have that strong interaction between the Pentagon and, and Langley. Um, because they're going to be, there's going to be more and more of that type of covert action program out there uh, taking place just because of the nature of the on-the-ground conflicts that we're in today, and those are going to be the same type of conflicts we have in the future, and they're going to be more covert action programs, but they're going to be military, uh, and there's going to be military inter interaction with, um, with the intelligence community, and it's got to be more seamless. Yeah, I, I was just going to jump in there, too. One of the most frustrating things, so we, we in the House at least did both the national uh, intelligence budget and the military intelligence budget in the same place, which was helpful because it gave us some extra insight into some, some of the military activities. But we always said that it's really maybe time, not for a Title 50, not for a Title 10, but maybe a Title 60, uh, in the slice of trying to get these covert action programs to function well and have proper oversight. And I'll tell you why. I mean, if you... The, the legal complications for taking Unit A and making it work with Unit B in place C was almost comical. And I thought, you know, we're doing this to ourselves. You know, nobody sees this, number one. And number two, we're doing this to ourselves. We are making this so hard and so complicated that it's wonder that any of these things work when they're done, right? I mean, most of the, most of the effort is in the back, back half of the operation. And so I really do think that we've got to change the way on these covert actions. I agree with you, Saxby, 100%, that there has to be a way, and it doesn't have to be the entire committee on both sides, but it has to be maybe a smaller subset of members. And then we ought to go, they ought to go through and look uh, at all of the things that we have to do. They call it chopping and all of this other thing that's now got its own vernacular to try to get some of the military guys to work with the civilian guys to do uh, Operation A. And by the way, in the middle of it, of some of these covert actions, the law changes right in the middle of it. I mean, it is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. I think you know what I'm talking about. It was the dumbest thing I said. Why have we, why do we do this? And then somebody else becomes in charge when, you know, this tiny little thing happens, then it goes to someone else, and then when that's done, it goes back to the other person, right in the middle of the operation. How's the coordination with I your services committees on, on paramilitary operations? Uh, not as good as it should be. That is absolutely true. Yeah. You would well, think that it would be seamless there, 
but it isn't. There's there's a lot of jurisdiction protection that goes on yep. there. That to remind the 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 largest unfinished recommendation of the 9/11 Commission uh, was to set up a discrete uh, Homeland Security Committee with major jurisdiction. Well, there are Homeland Committees in both houses and with minor jurisdiction because of all the jurisdictional fights. But I, I wanted to add to what Mike said. I think it's even more complicated. Uh, first of all, there are jurisdictional fights between armed services and intelligence, but there also are implications of which badge people are wearing when they do what in foreign countries. I mean, what, what our military does uh, can be construed, depending on what the circumstance is, as a declaration of war, and what our intelligence folks do falls in a different bucket. So we have to be, you know, we're doing it to ourselves, but it also is, there are some international signals that we're sending by what we call these folks. But I I wanted to make an additional point, and that is that the intelligence budget is dispersed throughout the whole federal budget. There isn't just one bucket for intelligence operations, and it is very difficult to uh, oversee it and authorize funds for a variety of <coughs> things. And the committee, when it's not having partisan fights, does that pretty well. And Mike is right that he and Dutch did a really good job of getting authorization bills out the door. But then the appropriation of funds goes through a different committee, the Appropriations Committee. And some of those folks are in different subcommittees, and they don't perhaps get all the nuances. So there has been a long-standing argument that the Intelligence Committee ought to have both authorization and appropriations jurisdiction. Of course, uh, the Appropriations Committee doesn't agree with that, but there was an effort for a time, which I think failed, I'm not sure if it's still in place, to to designate a few appropriators to be part of the intelligence authorization function, at least to try to get enough people up to speed so that the process would work responsibly. And I, I don't think it happened. Thanks for listening to this special episode of Intelligence Matters, and please tune in next week. This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Claire Himes. And a special thanks to Levi Magyar for his on-site audio production at this event. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod. And follow Michael at Michael J. Morell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. <laughs> AutoTrader.